Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. This week, we'll be discussing the latest European bank results, starting with Santander. We'll also be looking at the implications for data management in the banking industry on the back of the Facebook row. And finally, over to the US, where Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been talking to the head of BitPaysa, the African payments network. First, though, to European banks. And the results season for first quarter results has begun. We've had a few results in. And on Tuesday, Santander was the latest to report. Martin, maybe we could start with you and your thoughts on these results, which are kind of an interesting mix, generally quite good, but the UK a bit of a disappointment. Yes. So shares in the Eurozone's biggest bank by market capitalisation fell more than 2% after it reported quarterly numbers that were a bit of a curate's egg in terms of performance. Uh, Good in parts, I would say. Uh, The good parts were Brazil, Spain, and also the uh, US business, which has been a bit of a problem child for the Spanish bank. But the the new problem child seems to be the uh, large UK business that Santander owns. Santander UK Profits were down pretty sharply, down more than 20%. And the bank blamed this on regulation. Uh, It said that um, it had to invest more to meet the requirements of the ring fencing rule to separate its consumer-facing operations from, from other operations in the UK. But also, interestingly, it's the first bank that I've heard blame uh, higher costs on the so-called open banking regime that came into force this year. Now, this is the EU-wide law that requires banks to open up access to their customers' accounts if those customers give their permission. This is the Payment Services Directive 2. Second Payment Services Directive in the EU. And the way that's been transposed in the UK, which has gone further than other uh, European countries, is called open banking. And as I say, yes, it's forcing banks to give access to the data they have on their customers to other others like fintechs. And Santander has blamed this, saying that it's having to invest more in digitization to prepare for more intense competition. And so that's pretty interesting. It's also seen an uptick in provisions for bad loans in the UK, but that's from a very, very low base. It was hit by uh, the Carillion collapse last year. But otherwise, the the bank is is doing pretty well. Profits uh, overall were up more than 10%. And that is despite the impact of a stronger euro against many of the currencies in which it earns profits around the world. What do you think it tells us, the Santander UK results, tell us about the prospects for the other big UK banks which are reporting over the coming days? Are we going to see their results hit? I think they are all talking about investing more in digitization. Uh, Lloyds Bank, um, with their new three-year strategy, recently came out with a $3 billion 
pound uh, investment figure that they're planning to invest in, you know, improving the quality of their services online and, and their mobile apps. And the other banks are, are talking about the same thing. Another interesting element that came out of Santander's explanations of why the UK is struggling is that um, there's higher competition. And I think this is being driven by the withdrawal of the cheap funding that the government uh, has been providing. So the term funding scheme expired earlier this year. And so you're seeing banks having to compete more aggressively to win deposits, which is, the, which of course, a very cheap source of funds for them. But that will mean having to offer higher interest rates to depositors. And also there is intense competition in the mortgage market because there are lots of challenger banks trying to win market share there and as well as big lenders looking to to build their market share like HSBC. So I think in terms of the net interest margin, which is the difference between what banks earn from lending money to people and what they pay out to depositors, uh, that is being squeezed a bit in the UK um, with the withdrawal of this um, state subsidised lending. One thing we should also flag, of course, even if times are getting tougher, Barclays breathed a sigh of relief the other day when its chief executive was let off the hook by regulators, uh, albeit with a probably substantial fine, but at least he's not been ejected over the whistleblowing affair that's been hanging over his head for the past year and which we talked about a couple of weeks ago in the podcast. Let me bring in Laura now for her thoughts about broader first quarter results because the other banks that we've heard from include UBS and whether their results tell us something more broadly about the European banks that we've yet to hear from. So UBS had a curious set of results. On the one hand, they did produce their highest quarterly profit since the first quarter of 2015. You might think that sounds good. In reaction, the share price fell about 5% on the day that the earnings came out, which was on the Monday and it fell further on the Tuesday. So in terms of what investors didn't like, there were two big things. One was progress on the newly merged global wealth management business. So earlier this year, UBS announced that they were merging Wealth Management Americas, which was the US business, with the International Wealth Division to create the world's biggest wealth manager with a £2.3 pile of assets under management. Now, there were some fairly bullish earnings expectations for that in the first quarter and they didn't hit it. The other thing people didn't like was costs across the piece. The investment bank UBS actually did very well in. So UBS Investment Bank, that had the best quarter it had since the first quarter of 2015. It managed to, while not quite get the same gains that the big US banks had last week in equities, it still did very well in equities. And it's also facing some currency headwinds there. Fixed income was a little bit worse than the US banks, but fixed income isn't a big deal for UBS. So in terms of what we expect to see from the other banks, Credit Suisse and Deutsche, they have more of a fixed income tilt. And if you look back to what the US investment banks reported last week, we saw that across them all, equities revenue in the first quarter was up 32% year on year and fixed income revenues were down 1% year on year. So when you think about that, a bank like UBS, which is more heavily tilted towards equities, is going to look a lot better relative to a Deutsche Bank, which is obviously famously a fixed income house, and then also relative to the Credit Suisse Investment Bank, which is also more tilted towards fixed income. So I think we are expecting that UBS is probably going to have been the best performing European investment bank for the quarter because of the business mix. And certainly expectations going in were that the other investment banks, Barclays also, is fairly heavily rates focused, which is also part of the fixed income franchise. So certainly the outlook for the other European investment banks isn't great. In terms of the retail business, 
the net interest margin gains people had maybe hoped to see UBS make on the wealth side as we saw rates rising haven't really come through. That also has a negative read across for Credit Suisse because it also has a big wealth business and to a lesser extent to some of the other banks like HSBC has a private bank as well, BNP Paribas. But their private banks are a much smaller portion of the whole. So while that might hurt them, it's not going to be a big deal for the shares overall. Okay, we'll keep everyone posted on those first quarter numbers as they come in over the next couple of weeks. Let's move on to our second topic and a look at the ramifications of the data route that's uh, engulfed Facebook and Cambridge Analytica in recent weeks and the read across from that and also from the payment services directive too that we alluded to when Martin was talking about uh, Santander's results, the implications for that for banking as well. And to discuss all this, I spoke earlier to Alan McIntyre, who's the Global Banking Practice Leader at Accenture. Thanks, Alan, for joining us. It's an interesting time, isn't it, for this whole topic of data collection, which is obviously pretty crucial to banks, because not only have we had the kind of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica scandal, but we're also in an era of new open banking rules across the EU. What is the most important thing that's at stake here in terms of the, the kind of quality of data and, and the integrity of gathering it as well? I, mean, I think the most important thing is going to be customer trust. I think what we're seeing from some of the recent issues in other sectors is that if customers lose trust in the ability of banks to handle their data appropriately, then they're going to lose broader trust in the ability of banks to provide you know, unbiased objective advice for them. So I think you know, banks are going to need to be in the business of building customer trust through really showing through pretty radical levels of transparency, I think, that they're able to handle customers' data and able to handle it in a way that makes everyone in the system feel comfortable. Setting customers aside for a second, we'll come back to that angle, but what about the, the actual validity of the data that's, that's gathered often by these banks, which I think some studies have shown rather assumes truthfulness on behalf of those that are disclosing yeah. the data in the first place, the lack of checks, if you like? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's going to be a process that's going to have to be put in place to ensure data veracity. I mean, if you think about some of the changes that have happened say, in the corporate banking world, the banks need to go through a whole process of know your customer now, where they have to go through very detailed checks in order to onboard a corporate customer. Is this a real, where is that company based? Is it under sanctions? I think what we're going to see is banks getting data from the outside. There's going to have to be some sort of know your data process in place as well, which is going to have to establish, you know, to some degree, the, the truthfulness and the veracity of those data sources and to make sure that we don't get into the sort of fake news type situation in banking that we're seeing in the media at this point, that the banks are going to have to take some responsibility for the data supply chain. And rather than just consuming data from the outside of the organization and assuming that it's correct, actually having an expanded set of requirements to check where that data is coming from and can it be trusted. And as you say, there's kind of two degrees of that. There's firstly, the banks that are collecting it themselves from their own customers, but then the whole open banking notion kind of pushes that relationship away from, from the original end user, doesn't if it? If you and, think, yeah. think about open banking, there's, there's an export and an import version of this. And what we're seeing in Europe with PSD2 is essentially an export version where the banks are having to make their data available to the outside. And that is where some of the strong support authentication, some of the security stuff comes in to ensure that the data is going to the right place. I think that the, the less apparent challenge is the import version of open banking, which is where the banks are consuming information from, say, 
your real estate information from retailers, from other third parties, and trying to use that information to better tailor their banking products. And I think that is where there's, there's less regulatory oversight at the moment, and where the banks are going to need to take more responsibility, I think, for ensuring that data is accurate uh, and is capable of being used by them for tailoring the customer expertise. One final point I wanted to bring in here was the use of non-traditional data, which we're, we're seeing certainly in some quarters of uh, financial services. The scraping of kind of social media information kind of brings us back to the whole Facebook data row, I suppose. But, you know, some believe certainly that you can spot uh, better or worse credit risks from patterns of behavior on social media. W- what do you see as the future for that? I certainly think that there is value in a lot of that data. The question becomes, does the customer see a better outcome as a result of it? If you think about navigation, we all share our data all the time to apps like Google Maps and Waze, and we're comfortable sharing that data because it helps us navigate to where we want to get to. If we turned that off and we didn't share that data, we would be getting paper maps out of the glove compartment again, and life would be a lot more challenging. So, you know, most people are comfortable sharing that type of extended data to make the product better. I think we need to come up with those examples for banking. You know, if you're sharing geolocation data with your bank, does it mean that you get a better targeted offer because the bank knows that you're walking by a particular retailer and can push an alert to you that says you get double points in your credit card? I think if customers see the benefit of sharing that type of data, they're going to be happy with the result. I think where the challenge is, is if customers feel as if they're just being bombarded with data that's not relevant to them, offers that are not relevant, and feel as if the banks are indulging in some sort of cyber stalking where they have lots of information that the customer is not aware that they're sharing, and the customer doesn't see the value of it being used to help them with their day-to-day financial transactions. It's a crucial area and one that I'm sure uh, we're going to be monitoring a lot more closely in future. Alan McIntyre from Accenture, thank you very much. Thank you. Finally, for our third topic, let's go across to Ben McClanahan, who's been speaking to Elizabeth Rossiello. Now, she is head of BitPesa. This is the Sub-Saharan African Payment Specialist, which focuses on digital foreign exchange. Uh, Elizabeth, thanks very much for joining me. BitPesa, what does this thing do? How does it work? <laughs> well, thanks for having me. Happy to talk about BitPesa. It's been my life's work since 2013, and we've made tremendous progress. And what we are is a liquidity provider. Now, what does that mean, right? I always say she with the most liquidity wins. Now, that means how much capital I've raised. That means how much customer uh, transactions I have. And that means how much I'm optimizing my customer transactions and and selling it on both sides. So what am I talking about? Well, I'm based in sub-Saharan Africa. And when I was living in Nairobi, Kenya, I found it very difficult to exchange my Kenyan shillings. There were very few places I could go to exchange those Kenyan shillings for U.S. dollars. But more importantly, I didn't want U.S. dollars. I wanted Ugandan shillings or Tanzanian shillings because usually I was traveling in the region. And there were very f- few places to find liquidity for those local currencies. And God forbid I took those Kenyan shillings out of the continent. There was no way I would find liquidity for them. It was a niche currency. And I started my career at Credit Suisse where you could arguably say this was franc as a niche currency. However, highly liquid. A lot of places to transact using that all around the world. So for me, it was an idea of how do we create more liquidity? Do you buy a bank? You know, Do I become a foreign exchange broker at the airport with a glass window? What does the future of a liquidity provider look like? And for us uh, in 2013, that meant accepting crypto. 
And we said, anybody in the world who has crypto, I will trade with them in Kenyan shilling. Now, why crypto? Well, I could have accepted bank transfers, but then I would have to become a bank. I could have accepted cash, but that's messy and ugly and expensive. And I could have accepted credit cards, but that's also expensive and not always available in African currencies. So for me, crypto was the way that I became a liquidity provider. And then we spread out from Kenya to the neighboring East African economies and over to one of the largest markets in Nigeria, where not only was there a problem finding liquidity for Nigerian Naira, but most of the pairing between the Naira was always through the dollar. So if you wanted to go to euro, or you wanted to go to Ghanaian cities, or you wanted to go to Chinese yen, you had to go through the dollar. And as soon as you touch the dollar, that tends to slow things down, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, because there was a real dollar shortage given the oil prices. So what ended up happening was you had hoarding of dollars, and then you were stuck. Since there were no other liquid currency pairs available, and no other liquidity providers would offer you those pairs, you were stuck waiting for dollar to become available. So what if we offered other currency pairs? What if I raised my hand and entered the market and said, I will buy your Naira and I will give you not only Bitcoin, but I'll give you currencies all over the world and I'll use Bitcoin to get me there. And that's what we did. So not to be too abstract, we started in 2013. We've expanded to seven African countries. In each of those countries, we are, have the ability to collect and disperse local currencies which is not easy. You have to have a corporation, bank accounts, licensing, a team, et cetera. And then something really unique we did was we went up north. So very few African companies go up to Europe and create a footprint there. And in 2015, we were the first company in the world using Bitcoin to get a license from the UK regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, to become an authorized payment institution. And that was pretty exciting because that allowed us to work with customers who need liquidity, namely remittance companies. People working in the UK that want to send money back to... Yeah, or a lot of UK companies that collect money from all over Europe and send it back to, to Africans. And not only send it back for birthdays, but also rental payments or business or import-export. So it's a huge market. It's $25 billion alone just in Nigeria a year that we know of. And many of the markets are easily above a few billion. So for us, now as another liquidity provider, that's a way for us to, to reduce the cost without being the traditional way. And now we grew from just a few thousand dollars a month of transactions to $24 million a month in transactions last month. And we have opened up offices, not just in Africa, but also in London. And we recently purchased another company in Spain in January, Transfer Zero. So now we're licensed not only in the UK, but across Europe. So it sounds as if this is a sort of real Bitcoin business with a, with a P&L, uh, if not showing profits yet, at least showing some kind of um, flow of uh, in, income yeah, outgoing. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, a real business. Revenue generating since day one. Some real numbers to show. We finished our A round last year. We'll have a B round probably the end of this year. And um, what's exciting for us is that we use crypto in places where there is no infrastructure. And then we make a decision later on, can we replace that now that we've entered the market and we're willing and we're able and we have a unique approach, will we replace that with quote unquote traditional infrastructure or will we keep using crypto? So for places and currency pairs like Japan, where I'm heading next week, there's a huge used car import market in East Africa. And so we have a lot of import-export between Japanese car parts and also Japanese cars. Now, nobody really thinks about a Ugandan shilling Japanese yen currency pair. It always has gone through the dollar, but it makes the most sense for us to use Bitcoin to settle those transactions. And there's highly liquid Bitcoin Japanese yen market and great brokers to use it. So it's a perfect example of using Bitcoin as a middle currency. And meantime, how are you navigating the regulation environment? Because um, Bitcoin's always been associated with illicit flows yeah. from dubious people. Of course, your your customer base is, is probably, I don't know, a little bit cleaner than that. But how do you persuade regulators that you're all above board and that the, uh, the, the flows are not going to 
hurt people. Just a lot of intense education, which is difficult for a startup, but it's something that we signed up for day one. You know, before I, I entered this business, I was working with microfinance regulation across the continent. And at that time, everybody said, no way, you would never be able to KYC the poor. <laughs> and you would never be able to include the excluded because the KYC was impossible. And that turned out to be just baloney. That's know your customer. Exactly. So know your customer or anti-money laundering. How do you know your customer? There's many ways. So there's the obvious way of name, date of birth, address, backed up by government or official documentation, whether that's a passport or a utility bill. There's community, know your customer, which is the way microfinance groups do it, which is asking the school teacher, asking the local chief or the traditional authority, et cetera. Do you know them? And for us, it's the same. You know, our customers uh, get faster onboarding or lower prices if they upload their passport because that's easy for us to do with an algorithm. If it's not a passport and it's a, a national ID or a voter registration card, we have to do it manually with, with our eyeball onto the ID. But there's certainly ways to do it. Every transaction has to also be KYC. So once you're onboarded as our customer, we need to know your use and your source of funds. And our average transaction size is more a B2B market. So we don't have you know hundreds of thousands of small value transactions. So it's quite easy for us to do. What's more important is that we're licensed in the UK and Europe. And according to the one leg concept, if one leg touches UK or Europe and that's where you're licensed, the other leg or whatever body parts touching anywhere else has to follow the same rules. So all of our subsidiaries are under the same rules. And as a startup, that's not a problem because we have economies of scale and centralized technical systems. So it's not like we have 40 employees in each country that don't speak to each other. We're all in Slack. We have centralized compliance. So it's easy to make sure that we have a high high bar across all of our markets. And you're using Bitcoin as an exchange medium. Uh, how, how is that possible with Bitcoin so volatile? First of all, the Nigerian Naira was more volatile than <laughs> Bitcoin in several of the years that we've been operating, not to mention other currencies. We have, uh, we're not really blinking an eye as much because there are rules and regulations for this. You know, you just have a risk strategy. You don't have an exposure, a counterparty exposure. It's not like you throw all the rules of finance out the window when you're trading a new instrument. Um, and just say no rules, you know, this isn't a casino. But um, we keep the prices fresh. So if the price moves, we make sure that we don't have a window where the price is open. And we work with brokers where we understand where we're taking the price from and what kind of margin we have on top of that. So we are protected. And the result to the consumer or to the business to business person that's using it is, is what? Is, is it quicker? Is it cheaper? Yeah, quicker, cheaper, feasible. And so, you know, a lot of times we have customers who are doing transactions through a bank or through several middlemen. And, you know, they were sending it to a U.S. partner, sending it to a European partner, then sending it to an African partner. And that's the worst case where it could take, you know, two weeks, three weeks, several partners. Nobody knows where it is. Um, the best case scenario is that they're using a bank, but it, it takes three days or uh, it's charged up to 12%. And how does your spread compare to that theoretical 12%? On average, we're usually a third of the cost. Thank you very much, Elizabeth Rossiano. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Laura here in the studio. Also, our guest from Accenture, Alan McIntyre, and Ben and his guest in the US. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. And this week, also be aware that Laura and our colleague from Frankfurt, Patrick McGee, star in a year-long features project looking at getting fit called Fit Hacks. Is that right, Laura? It is indeed. And we've just done our first Fit Hacks podcast. So if any podcast fans want even more podcasts, that's also available through the FT podcast section. Banking Weekly was produced by Martin Staber and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.